My goodness, what a pro. Uh, we're grateful to you, sir, and Patsy for a wonderful prelude. Uh, Paul, Paul has a long history um, of music uh, from Buffalo, New York, and, and all in between, and it's a great joy to have him with us. Uh, substituting for Greg, who's on holiday today, and we remember him in his travels as well. Uh, we had a beautiful wedding last night at a place called The Quarry. Y'all ever been to The Quarry? The Greystone Quarry uh, off of 840. Uh, it's my favorite uh, non-church venue to do a wedding, and uh, it was just a beautiful thing. Justin Anderson and our own uh, Tiffany Mangione were married last night, uh, and I, it, I have never seen what I saw last night. The groom, as he was coming down, it was like he was doing the 50-yard dash as he was coming down. I've never seen a groom that ready for marriage, and he came in a hurry. Uh, on the other hand, during the recessional, he took his time. He was kissing his wife on the way out, and we realized that he, he came in a hurry, but he left slowly because he found what he was looking for at the altar. It was really special. Uh, also, it, we, we had a late night. Sherry and I came in late. Uh, so if I should fall asleep while I'm preaching, please don't wake me. I need the rest. Uh, so if you'd just be mindful of that. We're continuing our series today that we started two weeks ago called Core Values. And core values are our internal belief system principles by which we determine and discern our goals and objectives. And I think that's personal and corporate as well. We've talked about core values as being sort of like the guardrails or the compass that guide us in our mission, in our purpose, and in our vision. And so each week we've been looking at several corporations and companies to find out what their core values are. And I decided to do something local uh, this week. I looked up Nissan, headquartered here. Nissan has five core values. Always think of the customer, face reality, be accountable, think outside the box, respect others. Those are good. I, I looked up Amazon, big deal, Amazon has four core values, customer obsession, passion for invention, commitment to excellence, and long-term thinking. And then I looked up, Hugh, my favorite business, which is Kilwins. I don't know if you know Kilwins or not. There is one in Franklin. They have three core values. Number one, treat others as you want to be treated. Number two, do your best. Number three, be joyful. And who can look at that picture and not be a little bit joyful? Uh, by the way, this sermon is brought to you this morning by Kilwins. Um, <laughs> sweet in every sense since 1947. We have five core values in this church, and today we've talked about the necessity, number one, of being Christ-centered. That a Christ-centered person is a Christ-minded person, and if we can begin to think like Jesus, then perhaps we can begin to live like Jesus, love like Jesus. And then last week we talked about the ministry of all believers. The church is not simply clergy and then laity. Every one of us who have been baptized into the faith are called of God, are gifted by God, equipped by God for the same purpose, and that is to build up the body of Christ and to build up the unity of the faith. 
Today I want to talk about one of my favorite core values that I think is so key, not only to life, but it's key to discipleship. It's key to the church. And it's the core value of being teachable. It's no accident that the Greek term, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, as you know, the Greek term for disciple is methetes, which literally means student, learner, apprentice. For a student to be proficient in a subject or in a field of study, he or she must be teachable. And I've discovered that teachability is not just about competence and, and aptitude, but teachability is about attitude. It's a desire within us to learn, to understand, to listen, and to apply. And I think it's also a desire sometimes to unlearn and relearn. It was Mark Twain who said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Misinformation, disinformation, and the like. Susan Beaumont, who's an American Baptist pastor, was with us back in February. She's written a book many of you have read called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. She writes of a need that we have in, in our culture to shift from knowing to unknowing. And when she said that, I thought, what is she talking about? Well, she wasn't promoting ignorance. What she was suggesting is that we must be willing to question our own presuppositions, not just everybody else's, so that we might remain humble and open. In fact, Dr. Beaumont said, when I get too full of my own knowing, God is always at the ready to right-size my ego. John Wooden, the great ball coach, said it like this, it's what you learn after you know it all that matters. I'm talking about teachability. An unteachable disciple is an oxymoron. And the root word of oxymoron isn't pretty. In our text this morning, it is obvious, it's evident, Sharon, from what you have read, that some of the original disciples of Jesus had a previous religious obligation. They were students of John the Baptist before he pointed them to Jesus. It's a curious passage. These two disciples who are unnamed at first, but later we discern who they are, when they overhear the baptizer's witness of Jesus, they begin to pursue Jesus. And let me just say, if you've ever been in the academy, if you've ever been among teachers, there's some ego among teachers. And so for John the Baptist to point to someone else, his own followers to someone else, to me is an expression of great humility and faith. A prior religious engagement. So when these two overhear their former teacher pointing to Jesus, they begin to pursue Jesus. And Jesus knows that they're following and says to them, what do you want? What are you seeking? What do you need? And they respond by saying, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you live? Where are you staying? 
Now at this point, their primary interest is not in his geographical address. They're not really asking where, they're asking how he lives. The question is actually a kind of a subtle indirect request, which is simply this, teacher, can we hang out with you for a little while? Can we walk with you? Can we see how you live? Can we sit at your feet? Can we stay where you stay? And Jesus says, of course, come on, come and see. And so Jesus at this point is inviting them into relationship. And, and isn't it true that oftentimes teachability is not just about information, it's about inspiration. It's not just about the curriculum, it's about who's teaching. And they followed Jesus, and listen to this line, I love this. And they remained with him for the rest of the day and the rest of their lives. In fact, John says that it was four o'clock in the afternoon. What difference does it make? Well, you know the difference. This is not a throwaway line. To remember the exact time is to say there's something special, there's an epiphany that's happening. That's, you remember, don't you, the time that your kid was born. We will always remember November the 27th, two years ago. Have I mentioned my grandchild to you before? <laughs> you remember your anniversary, you better. You remember the date. This is why John Wesley, by the way, in his journal, after his warm heart experience, he wrote in his journal, my heart was strangely warmed on Aldersgate Street on May 24th, 1738 at a quarter of nine. He could never forget that moment, epiphany. There's an interesting book in a collection of books called the Apocrypha. Now, if you're Catholic, you know this, if your background is Catholic, that in the Catholic Bible, you not only have New Testament, Old Testament, but you also have a collection of books called the Apocrypha. And, and these are writings that we as Protestant people don't accept as canonical, but we accept them as devotional material. There is a book in the Apocrypha called the Book of Sirach. And it happens to be the teachings uh, of a Jewish rabbi named Ben Sirach, two centuries before Jesus. His teaching is included in this book. And I tell you this because of this verse in Sirach chapter six. Listen to this. If you meet a man of understanding, go to him early in the morning, and I love this, and let your foot wear the steps of his doors. Isn't that beautiful? Let your thoughts be upon the porch of his precepts. Meditate continually on his teaching and he will give you a heart for learning and a desire for wisdom. Now that sounds a lot to me like the wisdom writer in Proverbs 8. Blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors where I stay. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. In ancient days, there were few, if any, public institutions of learning in Palestine. No public schools. The synagogue offered private teaching. And did you know that in the first century Palestine, the literacy rate was 3%. 3%. I think sometimes that there's something even more important than literacy, and that's functional literacy. That's where what we know applies to the welfare of our community. 
and to the good of the body. Literacy rate 3% first century Palestine. And so if you were interested in learning, if you wanted to get some schooling, you, you didn't apply to the University of Jerusalem. There was none. You didn't apply to a college. There were none. You would look for a teacher, a rabbi, an instructor. You would search him out wherever he was and you would wear out the steps of his door in order to be his disciple. 20 years ago, in the middle of ministry, I was 43, I decided I need to sharpen the saw. I felt like I needed to go back to school and do some work on theology and scripture and do a deeper dive. I met a man named Dr. Billy Abraham who was a professor at Southern Methodist University. He's an Oxford PhD who's an Irishman, still has that wonderful dialect. He died prematurely a year ago. He was 30 years professor, Albert Outler Professor of Evangelism at SMU. I met him one day in a conference and we took a walk around the lake and I told him that I felt like I needed to dig a little deeper. And he said, why don't you come to Dallas? And I did, I enrolled. And my first class in Dallas was the first time I ever set foot on the campus of SMU because I didn't go for the school. I went for the teacher. This man became my rabbi, earthly rabbi. And I wore out the steps of his classroom. I think I realized during that time that to be a disciple means that you absorb everything about the one giving instruction. That, that you're not just mastering a concept. You're, you're not just getting a degree or mastering a profession. You're binding yourself to a teacher, absorbing the gift of God in him until we become like him. That's what a disciple is. Several years ago, I went to the Skirmerhorn to hear Wynton Marsalis play the trumpet. Some of you know that I played trumpet in high school and college, and I went to hear this incredible musician play with his incredible orchestra. And we listened to him talk about his idol. He was a disciple of Count Basie. And when he played, you ain't got a thing without that swing. It was more Count Basie than Count Basie. That he had studied him, been mentored by him so much that it was like he became him. I'm talking about teachability. Now I know that as students, and, and teachers know this too, that it's so easy to get distracted from our subject. It's so easy to get distracted from our rabbi. In fact, I think about Mary and Martha when I think about distractions. I, I love that story of, of two sisters, who had invited Jesus to a banquet. You remember this story, Jesus and friends come to Martha's place. She puts on the dog. And you remember that Martha gets so obsessed with the menu that she misses out on the main course, which is Jesus teaching in her family room. And she got so hostile about it because she had been left by her sister to do the whole thing, which was a neglecting for Mary of her gender and domestic duty. And Martha just, she blew a fuse and she directed it at Jesus. 
The whole night she's working over a hot stove and her sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is the posture of a disciple in a culture where that privilege is customarily reserved for men. And Martha unloaded on Jesus. She complained to Jesus and then she tells Jesus what to do. Now, this is the way I pray sometimes. I, I make sure that Jesus is aware of the situation and then I explain to him how he can fix it. That's not a good prayer, but that's what Martha did. Teacher, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to get in here and help me. And I love Jesus's response. This is what he said, Martha, chill. It's a revised chapel version, but that's what he meant. Chill. You're trying to do way too much. You're overdoing it. You are distracted, which in the Greek means you are drawing away from me. But Mary has chosen the better portion and I'm not taking it away from her. Hey, what's the better portion? It's sitting at his feet. It's teachability. You don't need to cook all that when the chef is in the parlor. And Martha learned the hard way what I have had to learn the hard way, and that is this. Working for Jesus is no substitute for walking with Jesus. That's the better portion. You have to stay hungry. You have to stay humble. You have to stay teachable. This was Jesus's problem with the Pharisees because they thought they knew everything. They knew all that they needed to know. And I think Stephen Hawking was right when he said, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It is the illusion of my own knowledge. And the stuff that Jesus taught, oh my goodness. It's, it's so not easy. Turn the other cheek, go the second mile, love your enemies, bless those who revile you and insult you, pray for those who persecute you, hmm. forgive those who forsake you. Russell Moore is a Baptist preacher and a Baptist ethicist whom I have great respect for. He's editor of the Christianity Today magazine now, which was a, a, a magazine that was established by Billy Graham. In a recent interview, Dr. Moore talked about some of the concerns that he has about the church universal in a highly politicized, polarized culture. In the interview, he said that he had had multiple pastors tell him that they would often quote bits of the Sermon on the Mount in their preaching like turning the other cheek and that invariably sometimes people would come up to the pastor after the service and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And the pastor would respond, I am literally quoting Jesus. And sometimes the response would be, yeah, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. Moore said, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, we've got some trouble. 
And look, this, this is not any subtle innuendo in any fashion. It doesn't matter whether you lean a little this way or a little that way, that's not the issue. The issue is we've got to stay with the curriculum. We've got to stay with the red letters and be teachable. We have to wear out the steps to the door of Jesus. It's really interesting to me that in the scriptures, it's apparent that we're not simply called to to be students, but students then are called to be teachers. I mean, you see this, this is last words of Jesus in Matthew 28 and what we call the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things I have commanded. Students must become teachers and disciples become disciplers. That's what happens in the text, isn't it? As soon as Andrew encounters Jesus, what does he do? He brings his brother to Jesus. He disciples Peter. There wouldn't have been a Simon Peter if it hadn't been for Andrew. What does John do when he meets Jesus? He goes to get James. We found the anointed one. Same thing later on in the same text. Philip, when he meets Jesus, he goes to Nathaniel and disciples Nathaniel and the church, the community begins. There's a new book out called Life Worth Living. It is a guide to what matters most. It was written by three Christian teachers at Yale University. Did you know that there were three Christians at Yale? (laughs) Apparently there are. And the book that I read is actually the curriculum that they're now offering this new class to students who are coming in because they're trying to help them think beyond personal success to communal significance. And they begin with three questions. Number one, is what you are doing getting you what you want? Number two, what do you really want? And number three is the most important, is what you really want worth wanting? They're trying to turn their minds from the mighty I to we. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. I want the better portion. I think you want the better portion, which is wearing out the steps of our rabbi. Two things and I'm finished. Lynn Wilson is a friend of mine who did some consultation with us a few years ago. He's a creative director at a church in Texas and he's written a book called Think, Thinking Like a Five-Year-Old. This is worth reading. His book talks about the creative genius that is intuitive to little children. He tells of a test that NASA actually developed to gauge the creativity of astronauts a test that actually wound up saving the life of James Lovell and those two other astronauts who were on board Apollo 13. They failed in their mission to land on the moon, but through their creativity in the midst of this disaster, they were able to make it home. Lynn says that later after that event, the NASA team decided to devise and revise that test and adapt it and offer it to little children 
to see how creative they could be. And they gave the test to a group of five-year-olds and they determined that 98% of those five-year-olds were creative geniuses. They gave the same test to the same group five years later, these kids were 10 years old, and 30% of them tested as creative geniuses. They gave the same test at age 15, 12% were creative geniuses, and at the age of 30, same group, 2%. And so they began to ask the question that you're wondering, what is happening here? And part of what they came up with is that sometimes, and this is true in spiritual formation or education or child rearing, that sometimes if we're not careful, we can form little people into human functions rather than human beings. I wanna tell you, I learn more from my 21 month old grandson sitting on the floor than he learns from me standing beside me. Picasso said all children are artists. The problem is how to remain an artist when you grow up. Last thing, and I, I mean it this time. A six-year-old girl, first grader, not known for her attentiveness in class, was one day doodling and drawing while the teacher was trying to teach and the teacher was irritated and annoyed and so she walked over to the little girl's desk and said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm drawing. What are you drawing? She asked. I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher said, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> That's genius. Made in the image of God. Maybe this is why, maybe this is why Jesus said, look, unless you become as a little child, you can't get in. You will never understand the kingdom. That's the better portion. Being teachable my whole life and being able to teach others. That's a core value of the church. And the way for a core value to become a core virtue is to wear out the steps of the door of our rabbi, to sit at his feet, to learn and unlearn and relearn so that we come back to ourselves as kids of the kingdom, to be students who teach and disciples who disciple to the glory of God. In Jesus' name.